Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in chapter 3. Yesterday we did six verses today. I'm guessing we'll probably do about the same. (laughs) Um, So we are in chapter 3, and and in verse 7 we've been speaking about who was John the Baptist. We talked a little bit about the Qumran community yesterday because they were in the wilderness of Judea. They're where John was, and who is the Qumran community? They're the people who had the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it's their documents, their library in essence, that was found there, and that included manuscripts of the Old Testament, but also manuscripts of other books, such as the um, apocryphal book of, of 1st Enoch. And, and they were, they were a community that's, that's based in an apocalyptic worldview, that the world is coming to an end soon, and that the, um, the, the institutional church in Jerusalem was hopelessly corrupted, along with the priesthood itself. So they were a separatist movement, and, and they participated in the, the religious observances, let's say, at the temple, to the extent that they felt it was required by the Mosaic Law. But they mostly stayed away and stayed separate from that. They didn't have a priesthood of their own. They had a teacher, and it was called the teacher of righteousness, that main teacher was. And so they expected there would be a greater teacher to come. And so John appears in that place where they are, looking like, intentionally, I believe, um, Elijah. And John, I think, very intentionally chose his wardrobe and his, his manner of life in order to suggest that that he was a modern-day Elijah. He was not the reincarnation of Elijah. He was the, the one predicted in Malachi, but also, Matthew tells us, the one who was prophesied in Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 40. And so what is he preaching? He's preaching a, 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 a baptism for the repentance of sins. And, and as we said yesterday, baptism was something that Gentiles did as part of their process of conversion. While they were proselytes, they, they, they were a new creation. They had taken on the law. They had taken on the word of God as their rule of life. And so he's, he's asking, not converts here, he's asking Jewish people to do that very thing. In essence, what he's saying is, is that it's an ultimate rejection of all they had been taught and all they had experienced under the rule and leadership of the rabbis and the priests. And so John's basically saying, no, 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 this is more or less a conversion. It's a conversion to truth and to true religion. But then he sees many of the Pharisees, this is verse 7, and Sadducees coming to his baptism. Now Josephus, the the historian who we've mentioned multiple times now, Josephus identifies three groups of people in Judaism that he finds to be interesting and important. And, and those are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and this community called the Essenes, who may or may not have overlapped with the Qumran community. And for a long time, people have tried to figure out how John fit into that Essene group. And, and again, it's a separatist movement, and they're, they're out in the same region, at least. And so there may have been some overlap. If you had a Venn diagram, you couldn't draw a circle and put Essenes slash Qumran community in there. There seems to be a distinction. 
between the two. Josephus had an affinity for this Essene community and for this, this separatist group out there, largely because they, they represented a people who had devoted themselves to keeping the law of God. You know, their, their goal was to be pure in, in their lives in the way that they kept the law. You know, they weren't reliant on the sacrificial system. And, and that's one of the things that the prophets again and again and again, prior to the um, exile in Babylon, uh, excoriate the people for. It's like, you know, it's a wealthy time. You have much. Therefore, you can afford sacrifices for sin. But you don't have clean hands and a pure heart. No, you just, you're just wealthy enough to be able to afford to sin because you can make the requisite sacrifice for that. And so you, you're thankful to God for your prosperity, but you show that thankfulness by making many, many sacrifices rather than committing yourself to the, not only the law of God, but the purpose of God, which would be things like mercy, justice, those kind of things. They can afford not to be, because they can pay for the sacrifices necessary to avoid keeping the law. And so that, that's the main problem that the prophets saw with prosperity among God's people, is they forgot that the main thing was to commit themselves to being the people of God. And that has a very particular ethical and moral um, outlook. And so that's the problem. And so now John sees, and, and the Essenes and the Qumran community looked at the Pharisees and Sadducees as hopelessly compromised. I mean, these guys, the Pharisees, we look at as those conservative Jews, right? The Sadducees, not so much, because they didn't, they didn't worry about eternal rewards. They didn't believe there was anything like an eternal reward or a life hereafter or any of that stuff. So they didn't concern themselves with that. The way they understood themselves to be blessed by God and approved by God was their continuing prosperity. Now, they disappear almost immediately after the destruction of the temple. They, they just basically, nobody ever hears from them as a group ever again. The, Sadducee, or the uh, Essenes and the Qumran community, likewise, go away shortly after that because they were an apocalyptic movement and the apocalypse didn't happen. But one of the things that we see in the early Christian community, in Acts 2, for instance, is, is they adopt at least some of the principles of the Qumran and the community and the Essene community, in that they lived communally, they, they considered all assets and income to be fungible within the community. They shared all things with one another. That's exactly the way the Essenes and the Qumran community lived. And so we see that, and the reason for that is at least in part because of the belief that Jesus would come again at any moment. They didn't. If you had asked um, the early church, if you had said, so how soon do you think Jesus will come back? Do you think it will be within the next 2,000 years? They'd look at you like you were completely insane. They expected it imminently. I mean, that's the reason there's so much writing on it. There's so much that Paul has to say about it, so much Jesus has to say about it, because they're so convinced that it's going to come any day. They want to be prepared, and they want to be able to see it. They don't want to miss it, and they, they, they fear that they might. But they also believe with all their hearts that it's going to come in their lifetimes. And, and it can always 
lead us in the wrong direction because what it can do is lead us out of fellowship. And what what we need is not to, for that for that not to happen. We see this reform kind of movement in the church all throughout the history of the church, and it's always a good thing. That the monastic orders, the reason there are multiple monastic orders is because groups of people would come along and they would see that there's something missing in what's already there, or that what's already there has become so corrupted that it needs to be reformed, but it can't be reformed from within. It has to be reformed by starting something new and being the 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 light that others can see. And and that's true in the church itself. That's the reason that there are reform movements in Methodism. That's the reason there are reform movements in Anglicanism, in, in um, Roman church, and in other places, in Presbyterianism. That's the reason that you see these reform movements like the PCA, the ACNA, the, um, the movement within Methodism to pull apart. Um, it's because they see that they've lost the thread, that they have lost the thread, and the thread being the the importance of the Word of God, and the, the importance of the Word of God interpreted as it has traditionally been interpreted. In other words, to, not only is it the text received by the church as given by God for the structuring and ordering not only of the church but of individual lives, but also they see it as authoritative in that, and they see that I don't have the freedom to change the interpretation of something. I can't look at something that's always been interpreted a certain way and now look at it and say, no, 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 that's not what it means. It means something totally different. I've got a private revelation of that, or it doesn't comport with what I'd prefer to believe that it says. And so they leave it behind, or they just leave it out altogether. And and that's what these Essene and Qumran communities are. Essentially, they're reform movements within Judaism who have given up on being in, able to internally reform the system. And so they've separated themselves from it to be a light. And that's what John's doing by being in the wilderness and, and requiring people to come and see him. John doesn't go in and interact with them in the same way that Jesus does. So what we get is John sees many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming, and he says, you brood of vipers. Well, that's not real friendly. I mean, it's very clear what John thinks of them when he makes that statement. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You know it's coming. That's why you're here. There's another reason that they're there. They're jealous. They see the people going out, and then they have to go and investigate what this man's doing out here that's drawing people and what is a threat to them. And it could be a threat in a couple of different ways. Um, it could be a threat in the sense that their authority and their sway over the people is going to be lessened. But it could also be a, a threat in the sense that Rome may not like this and may come down on official Judaism because of this. So what is, it, what is, what is his prescription? Who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you're genuine, it's going to be obvious. And that's exactly what John Wesley did. Now, I'm not here to, to uh, commend Wesley's theology, particularly about justification, because I grew up in the Methodist Church, and I know that there's a destructive thing there that says you can, you can lose your salvation by sin. Well, I didn't get it by righteousness, not mine. I got it by Jesus' righteousness being imputed to me, and I keep it at all times in that way. And so there's no merit in me that's discoverable to say I was chosen because I was good and special. No, 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 no. He chose me before I did anything. And so 
it's, it's a work of God. Salvation is a work of God beginning to end, and I mean beginning to end. Before I, I am saved, it's his will and his work to save me. And then it's, it's the work of the cross that keeps me there. Not John's righteousness. That's never good enough. Never, under any circumstances, will I be good enough. I can't be 100% sin-free. And if I am, then I've misinterpreted what sin actually is, if I think that. So he says, you know, it's easy to tell. So what Wesley did was Wesley would, would tell his people that he left behind in the places where, where they were organizing was this. He says, you can count somebody making a profession in one column. It's essentially a spreadsheet. Count that in one column. Observe them for a period of time and note the change in those people. In other words, note where they bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then after I've forgotten how long it was, 90 days, six months, whatever it was, he said, now you can count them as a converted person but only after you observe their manner of life and the change in that manner of life over a period of time. And that's exactly what John's saying here. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you're really repenting, we're going to see that. He said, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't, don't fall back on inheritance, that you have an inherited right to the kingdom. He said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, because that's the way they would have seen themselves to be saved from the wrath that was to come. Abraham is my father. It's, it's why Jesus tells Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is thinking, you know, I, I won life's lottery by being born into Judaism. What do you mean I've got to be born again? That, that's a risk not worth taking. It's, it's, John says it's It's necessary. He says, don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up stones from these, chil- from these, st- able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He can do away with you and still have a full house by converting stones. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John says, no, it, you, you will be cut down and thrown into the fire if you don't bear good fruit. So it's not just a matter, he says, of being born into the right family. Nope. It's a matter of, let's see the fruit of your life. Is it bearing good fruit or not? John says that that this ought to be a very simple little calculation. And he says, your, 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 your birthright it doesn't guarantee the inheritance. Those are two different things. You have a birthright that says you have a right to an inheritance, but you have to lay hold of that, and you have to lay hold of that inheritance with your life. That's the way you get it. You don't get it just by sucking air on the planet, is John's, is John's statement here. No, 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 you don't get it just because you got born lucky. No, you've got to show by your life that it fits with God's word, God's law, and that you understand God's character, and that character is seen in you, and it's bearing fruit. And then he goes on to say, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. I mean, that's the most menial thing you could possibly do. John says, I'm not even, compared to him, I'm not even worthy for the most menial chore imaginable. He said, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he'll clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. He says judgment is real. Judgment is real. He'll clear the threshing floor. He'll gather the wheat into the barn so the good stuff goes in the barn, but the chaff he's going to burn with unquenchable fire, which is exactly, exactly what the Qumran community believed, that it didn't matter whether you were uh, born Jewish. No, it mattered whether or not you were pursuing righteousness. I'm pretty dead gum sure that it still matters. That justification isn't honestly enough. That's the beginning point. That's the new birth. Well, if you're a new creation, then we ought to be able to see that. And that's kind of the point that gets lost too easily within the Christian community is, is that, that we, we baptize people and we act like that's the end of the game. You're good to go now. And there are millions of people all over this country, at least, much less all over the world, who believe that very thing, who have not actually been born again. They've only been baptized. And, and it's up to us to preach the method, the message, I mean, that John preaches, which is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We ought to see it in your life. And, and, and you're going to be chopped down and thrown into the fire unless you're producing good fruit. Now, what do I, how, do I, how do I say we would measure that? I have no earthly idea. But what I do know is this. If you're being obedient and you're sharing the gospel with other people and you're praying for people and, and you're dealing with sin in your own life, then you're going to be producing fruit. Whether you see it or not, there's going to be fruit in your life and there's going to be fruit that will last because you've committed yourself to God's purposes and God's plan for your life. And that's the important thing. That, that's what we need to do. We need to be committed as Christians, not just baptized Christians, but those who have committed themselves to the way of God in everything in our lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.